0: Tech worldwide It's the high tech podcast in plain English with an hours worth of news in about 20 minutes That's because we leave out the commercials the station breaks the sports and most of the jingles <laughs> Podcast number 749 25th of June 2021. This week, tracking down problems with a computer is usually a multi-step process of developing conjectures that lead to hypotheses and eventually to a valid theory. The first conjecture is sometimes right, but more often it's not. I'll describe a recent puzzler. In short circuits, ransomware may be less of a threat to individuals than it used to be, but less of a threat doesn't mean no threat we still have to be cautious. Firefox's market share has dropped from 30% a decade ago to around 7% now, but the browser still has loyal advocates and with good reason. In spare parts, only on the website, a global computer chip shortage is creating havoc in the automotive industry and elsewhere, but missteps by car and truck manufacturers have made the problems worse for them. I found a picture of what was probably my first portable computer from 1988. I'll share this week. And 20 years ago, PC Expo had just concluded. The dot-com implosion had made the show a lot smaller, but darker times were coming. Sometimes I wonder what I'll yammer about on the podcast, and it's not unusual for daily life to hand me a topic. This happened in early June. Finding the cause of a problem takes time, and the first conjecture isn't always the right one. In the first week of June, it seemed that my primary computer was dying. That could be a very expensive problem. The symptoms were unusual at best and somewhat enigmatic, On a Friday afternoon, near the end of a process that had consumed three hours, the computer shut off. No blue screen, no black screen, just boom, nothing. I restarted the computer, and within minutes, it had shut down again. Boom, no warning. I tried that a few more times, and eventually concluded that repeating the same steps and expecting a different outcome was probably illogical. Leaving the computer off and going to bed seemed the most logical option, so that's what I did. On Saturday morning, before starting the computer, I vacuumed the air inlets. They weren't badly clogged, but they did contain a substantial amount of dust, fuzz, and cat hair. The computer started and ran properly for a few hours. Then, boom, no warning, hard stop. What could be causing this? Well, temperature could be a problem, but Crystal Disk Info showed me the disk drives were all within the high normal range. Likewise, the CPU and a CPU that's approaching its thermal limit should just throttle its speed, not perform a hard stop. Next, I disconnected the external drives and logged on as administrator. With the external drives disconnected, I wasn't able to do anything worthwhile. Instead, I ran a variety of tests and malware scans. The tests and scans found nothing, but the external drives were disconnected and the computer was running more or less normally. It was time to get the external drives back into the picture and see what would happen. Even though the external disk drives in an Orico four-bay tower weren't reporting any dangerously high temperatures or other problems, cleaning seemed like a good next step. The fan was dirty, so I vacuumed it. The inlet vent needed cleaning, so I vacuumed it. I removed all the drives and vacuumed the case. When I plugged the disk enclosure back into the USB port and started the computer, everything seemed normal. The computer ran for about three hours, and then, boom, no warning, hard stop. I'd been keeping an eye on the activity lights on the disk tower. Normally, they're blue, turn red when the disks are being accessed, but all four lights were blinking red repeatedly and unexpectedly. About the time I noticed that, once again, boom, no warning, hard stop. This was becoming a little tiring so I'd been thinking that the problem might be related to the external drives. Had the disk enclosure failed? I had two options to investigate that. I could connect the external drives to another computer and see what happened, or I could plug the disk enclosure into a different USB port. Using a different computer would introduce more variables than I wanted to deal with, so I moved the USB cable from a port on the computer to a port on a USB hub. That limited the variables to just one. The external drive bay was the same, the computer was the same, the only difference was the USB connection. The first thing I noticed was the lights on the USB drive enclosure. They were all blue most of the time, one would turn red when data was being written or read, but they didn't all flash red repeatedly. It seemed that I'd found the problem. But no. After running for a little less than three hours, the computer shut down again, fast and hard. When I restarted the computer, it again shut down fast and hard after just a few minutes. So I took the disk enclosure out of the picture again and started examining the event viewer, hoping that I might find an error at about the time the computer had shut down. Given the way the computer shut down, I knew that there wouldn't be an entry for the crash itself, but only a follow-up entry from when the computer booted the next time that would be the equivalent of, well, I wasn't expecting that. What I found in the event viewer were several entries for Freemake, a utility that's capable of converting videos from one format to another. It has mixed reviews at best. I had installed it so that I could convert one video, then uninstalled it. If it wasn't there, how could it be creating problems? While investigating the other possibilities, I had connected the drive stack to a macOS computer. The Mac can't write files to NTFS volumes, but it can read them. All of the drives mounted properly, and there seemed to be no problems. Back on the PC, I searched for driver updates, found only two that related to USB devices, but not to USB storage devices. Expecting no change from the unrelated USB drives, I installed the updates and there was no change. Further investigation showed that uninstalling Freemake didn't uninstall a Freemake service. The service wasn't running, but the computer was trying to launch it. The errors coincided remarkably with the crashes. So I killed the service, shut the computer down while the USB stack was detached, reattached the drives, and booted the computer shortly before noon on Sunday. And here's a bit of an aside. Freemake has a Better Business Bureau rating of F. Both Avast and Malwarebytes warn that Freemake attempts to install unwanted applications. The consensus seems to be that the application itself is safe, but the business practices are unacceptable. The fact that uninstalling the application didn't uninstall the Freemake improver utility is yet another negative mark. But what about the crashing issue? Has it been resolved? Well, it seemed illogical. After all, I had removed the application months ago, maybe a year ago. If it's the cause of the problem, why didn't the problem start showing up a long time ago? The hard stop crashes seemed to occur about three hours after the computer had started. So, at 3 p.m., the computer was still running normally. That was a good sign. Three hours, no problems. Likewise, 6 p.m., six hours, no problems. Normally, the computer is off at night, but I allowed it to run overnight. At 5.30 the next morning, all was well. It was Monday morning, and I ran a disk image backup on drive C. That's the backup I had been running on Sunday when the computer crashed. It's impossible to say that the problem has been resolved, because it's not possible to prove a negative. But it did seem reasonable to assume success, because the computer had continued running normally for 24 hours. So, as of noon Monday, 24 hours, no hard failure. The event viewer system log, free of unexpected errors. Therefore, no need to replace the Orico disk stack. That would have been a $200 expense, and it would not have solved the problem. Also, no need to replace the computer. That might have been a $2,000 expense, and it probably wouldn't have solved the problem, at least depending on how I restored the operating system. So, the bottom line here is, don't panic. That's the advice given by the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It applies to life in general and computer issues specifically. Decisions made by people in a state of panic are often wrong. I could have spent a lot of money needlessly to replace hardware without solving the problem. As it turned out, the solution cost zero dollars and only a few hours of thought, logic, and analysis. HOLD IT RIGHT THERE, BUSTER. THERE'S STILL MORE. SPILL IT. Alright, yeah, I thought I was done with this, but then reality stepped in. So, here's the rest of the story. After confirming that the problem didn't recur during several days of normal use, I connected the hard disk USB stack back to the USB port on the computer that I'd been using previously. Normal operation continued, and that tended to confirm my initial conjecture about the problem being USB-related was incorrect, and that my current theory that the problem was the result of interference from the remains of an old program is valid. That, in fact, is the way science works. My initial conjecture was just that, a conjecture, not a lie. Science is a process, and what at that point I was calling my current theory would hold until or unless something else disproved it. And then, two days after I had moved the USB disk stack's connection back to its original port on the computer, the computer shut down fast and hard once again. So maybe it really was a combination of problems, one involving initiating a process that was no longer fully operational, and another that was related to the USB port on the computer. I moved the connection back to the USB hub, and again all seemed well. And at that point, I decided that this might be a good example of Fudd's first law of opposition. If you push something hard enough, it will fall over. Fudd's first law of opposition is cited in Firestone Theatres. I think we're all bozos on this bus back in 1971. The primary cause, I thought, was the Freemake utility. But that issue alone would have been insufficient to cause the crash. The extra push came from a hardware problem with the USB port on the computer. But that wasn't the end of it either. On the 18th of June, two brief power outages, each about a second within a few minutes of each other, were just enough to take down anything not protected by a UPS unit. That includes two USB hubs. Then I started seeing error messages about applications being unable to access their data drives. Rebooting the computer was an unpleasant surprise. The process hung before Windows even started loading. That's when USB devices and other devices are being registered and initiated. One of the hubs, an older USB 2 device, connects via the newer USB 3 hub. So I disconnected the newer hub and the computer booted normally. It was pretty useless that way because all of my devices and disk drives were unavailable. Then I disconnected all the devices from the USB 3 hub and plugged it back into the computer. The computer booted normally. Following two hours of testing, I believed that all of the devices that attached to the hub were functioning normally, but one or two of the ports on the USB 3 hub, or maybe the hub itself, was the underlying cause of the problem. I have replaced the USB 3.0 hub, so the repair was a little more expensive than the $0 I thought might solve it, but it was still less than $50 and far less than the cost of replacing a computer or any of the expensive components that were on the initial list of suspects. Is this the end? Well, I hope so. I believe that a series of interrelated issues combined to expose the underlying problem with a piece of hardware that had been marginal for quite some time and was finally pushed into failure mode by those power outages. And all of this brings me back to my guiding principle, don't panic. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation In Short Circuits, in an earlier segment of this series of reports on security, I noted that ransomware is less of a threat to individuals than it used to be, but less of a threat doesn't mean no threat. So what happens if your computer is taken over by crooks? If you switch the computer on one day and see a notice that all your files have been encrypted, what can you do? Well, you could pay the ransom. The pirates won't be asking for $5 million dollars but the going rate is still around $1,000, and you have to pay using Bitcoin. You'll probably get your files back, probably, no guarantees. Most ransomware leaves the operating system alone and encrypts just the data, but some malware locks the entire computer. Backup is the key to recovery, but you may find that the backup has been encrypted too if the backup disk is attached to the computer. The better choice is cloud-based backup, a system such as CrashPlan from Code42. Because the files are continuously backed up, the encrypted files are probably on the server, but many online services retain previous versions of files, so that makes it possible to recover the file versions before they were encrypted. You'll still need to get the malware off the computer, but then you can download files from the day before the malware attack began, You may lose the most recent versions, but because backups are continuous, it's often possible to recover files with only a few minutes of work missing. File versioning is helpful even if you never encounter a pirate, because you might want to have an older copy of a file that you modified intentionally or accidentally. Most free protective applications, including Microsoft Security, attempt to block ransomware but paid versions have additional options to alert users to ransomware attacks. One free product that has been discontinued by the vendor created directories and files on each disk, updated the files frequently, and then watched for changes. If any process attempted to modify the fake files, the application shut down the process and alerted the user. A possible replacement for that tool is Kaspersky's free anti-ransomware. You'll find a link on the TankBiter Worldwide website. It watches for activity that looks like a ransomware attack and then blocks the suspicious process until the user can review it. A decade ago, Firefox had a solid 30% market share versus Internet Explorer's 60%, and then Google launched the Chrome browser. Within three years, IE's market penetration had dropped to about 30%, and Firefox was trying to stay above 20%. Today, Chrome and other Chromium-based browsers have about 90% of the market, but Firefox still has a loyal following. Microsoft's new Chromium-based Edge browser exceeded Firefox's market share in the middle of last year, and Firefox is down to about 6% in the United States, a little more than 7% worldwide, and that puts it in fourth place. Chrome has just shy of 70% of the browser market. Safari is second at 10%, then Edge at 8%. Opera has less than 3%. And StatCounter says about 1.5% of users still have Internet Explorer. Despite a certain amount of frustration with Firefox, I always seem to return to it after trying one of the other browsers. Firefox version 89 was released at the end of May. Some people have reported sluggish operation and crashing. I have not seen this. In fact, I've seen better performance, but that's not to say that problems don't exist. Some people say they utterly detest the new look and feel. I don't question that observation either, but I like the new look and feel. I like it a lot. Firefox had a substantial memory leak for a lot of years, but the developers appear to have resolved that issue. I wanted to see how Firefox compares with Chrome in resource usage. All browsers have always seemed to be memory hogs, and some use a lot of CPU power. Regardless of the browser I use, I start each day with 14 open tabs. Those ebb and flow during the day, but starting with the same 14 tabs open in each browser seemed to be a pretty good comparison. The result, Firefox with 14 active tabs used just 0.2% of the CPU and 941 megabytes of RAM. Chrome, on the other hand, used 14.5% of the CPU and had 2,034 megabytes of RAM in use. So, in that very basic test, Chrome used 72 times the amount of CPU resources as Firefox, and had nearly double the amount of system memory. My primary computer has what is by today's standards a nearly obscene amount of memory, so having an application that uses twice as much RAM as a similar program is not a deal-breaker. Likewise, the computer has a powerful CPU. But still, Firefox is using virtually no CPU resources, and Chrome is using nearly 15% of the available CPU. A computer with less memory and a slower CPU would see a difference. Resource use isn't a primary deciding factor for me, but security is. I use a lot of Google resources, Google Drive, Google Photos, a Google Fi phone, so Google probably knows more about me than the FBI, the CIA, M6, my physician, and my bank combined. There's not much I can hide from Google, but I still prefer a browser that has a more active stance on privacy and security, and Firefox does that. Version 89 goes beyond an updated look and feel by expanding integrated privacy protections. When these privacy protections detect a potential issue, the shield icon in the toolbar glows. That indicates that the current site is attempting to use trackers and the browser is blocking them. Clicking on the shield icon displays information about what exactly is being blocked. Most browser users have multiple tabs open. The average, apparently, is around 4 tabs, not 14 as I have. The tabs have a new look, they are gently curved, they float above the toolbar, and the active tab has a highlight. That makes it easier to find, especially if you have 14 tabs open, not just 4. Menus have been redesigned to make them easier to use, and to reduce the need for multiple clicks to perform a single action. Mozilla has also reduced the number of alerts shown to users. Even if you prefer another browser, it's a good idea to keep an eye on Mozilla's blog, which frequently addresses security concerns. For example, there was recently a post about deceptive design patterns used on some websites. The blog said, Deceptive design practices show up as tricky color schemes, frustrating mazes, sneaky designs, and confusing language. Websites use these techniques to influence your behavior into a direction that benefits them more than it benefits you. So if you've ever ordered something online and found an extra item or two in your cart when you tried to check out, you've experienced deceptive design. The article lists several other despicable techniques, including messages from websites that may appear to come from the browser, or the operating system. Version 89 addresses that problem too. The user interface has been updated so that there is no mistaking when it's Firefox talking to you and when you're receiving a message from a website. According to the blog, notifications and messages make it clear that you have a choice to engage with them and that using features should be a considered decision you make, not something we slip past you. It's a good article. It'll almost certainly be worth your time. Check out Deceptive Design Patterns. There's a link to the Mozilla blog from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You won't find any deceptive design practices in spare parts or elsewhere on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Visit the site to read these accounts this week. A global computer chip shortage is creating havoc in the automotive industry and elsewhere, but missteps by car and truck manufacturers have made the problem worse for them. I found a picture of what was probably my very first portable computer from 1988. I have it on display this week. And 20 years ago, PC Expo had just ended. The dot-com implosion made the show a lot smaller than in the past.